Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, meaning the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He said... He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and sight was restored. And then he got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength. For several days he was with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue then that he is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. In the fall of my ninth grade year, when I was beginning not only school and the Norman school systems as a ninth grader, we were still in junior high in the school system and in the youth department at the McFarland Memorial United Methodist Church. We had a new teacher and a big class. Our teacher was Panthea Freeman, a longtime editor of the United Methodist Women's Monthly Newspaper. And also, she had been a lay delegate to General Conference a time or two. She was an intelligent, well-informed, deeply committed United Methodist layperson who had taken on the challenge of this ninth grade class. The fall quarterly, we have our curriculum in quarterly chunks, and the fall quarterly, that 
year was a little book called The Calling of a Christian. Pantheon told us that it was a really good book and she wanted us to sit down and read it all the way through in one sitting. It'll only take you about 30 minutes, she said. Well, this little book was a biography of the life of St. Paul and his Damascus Road experience. The author had drawn together the details out of our scripture lesson today and, and other places in the book of Acts and from all that personal stuff that Paul had told uh, the different churches in his letters as he was writing to them. Well, that Sunday afternoon, I settled down in the big, soft, cushy chair in our family's living room, and I started reading. I'm a slow reader. Thorough, but slow, and it took me about an hour and a half to get through that little book. Today, I can't remember any of the details of the story. It's about 50 years ago. <clears throat> I know I don't look that old, but it's about 50 years. But what I do remember vividly is that I had a deeply moving encounter with that author's presentation of the story of Paul. And I had what John Wesley would have called a heartwarming experience. Because in that reading, I felt very strongly, I really want to be a true Christian, a real Christian, a committed Christian. But I knew my human weaknesses. And I didn't think I could keep up with that daily prayer and Bible study. But then a thought popped into my head. If I become a preacher, then I'll have to pray and read the Bible all the time. It'll be my job. Well, I kept that to myself for a, a long time. I didn't run around immediately seeking those reassuring pats on the head. But in terms of a call to the ordained ministry, the seed was planted that Sunday afternoon. For me, this text has a long history of meaning and, and has been significant to me. Nevertheless, I learned a lot of new things as I gathered in the company of biblical scholars, as I got their books together in my study and started reading about Paul again. Now, this story is somewhat confusing because we have this guy named Saul of Tarsus and this other guy named Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, Paul and Saul are the same person. Saul is the guy before the Damascus Road experience, and Paul is what he is called after that experience and that conversion and his baptism and his instruction and participation in the life of the Christian community, he becomes Paul. Well, I'll just call him Paul as I retell some of the details of his story. We don't know a whole lot about Paul's early life or even his age. Some scholars suggest he might be about 10 years younger than Jesus. 
still Jesus's contemporary, though he never met the earthly Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Paul was from a place called Tarsus, which was a prosperous Hellenistic city, far enough away from Jerusalem and the temple, the center of Judaism at that time, that it was called a part of the diaspora, meaning the Jews that were dispersed away from Jerusalem, scattered out into the world, the diaspora. And Tarsus was believed to be a commercial city, a port city connected to the Mediterranean Sea, and it was therefore a trade route city and was a very prosperous commercial and trade city. But the most important part is it was a part of the Roman Empire. It was under Roman rule. However, it's believed it had a unique status in that there were a few sizable Jewish communities which could exercise self-rule according to their laws, traditions, customs, and institutions. That relationship was called polituma. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I asked first service if anybody knew I was doing it wrong before I got on TV that uh, they would correct me, but nobody did, so hopefully that's the right pronunciation. Well, many scholars believe that being a Jew in Tarsus at that time meant that Paul enjoyed the privileges of that Polituma relationship with Rome, but was not actually a full Roman citizen, as tradition has said. Well, what this Polituma really means is that the community of Tarsus, especially the Jewish community of Tarsus, was no threat to Rome. Since they were prosperous, they were gathering taxes, collecting taxes, and became a resource that benefited Rome rather than a drain. Since they were no threat, there need not be a garrison of soldiers there in Tarsus to keep things under control, but rather they were a resource instead. So since Paul was well-educated, and free to travel, meeting his own travel expenses, he obviously had financial resources. Financial resources, educated, meant he was in up there in the top 10% of the population of privilege and wealth in this time. We know that later on he did claim to be able to earn a living as a tent maker. He didn't need the church to have to support him. He could make his own living. He wasn't going to be a drain, but he was a tent maker, which would lead us to believe that his family was in the tent making business. Because if he could wander around the country, he wasn't needed back home in the business. So his family probably was prosperous there in the city of Tarsus, this cosmopolitan, prosperous trade city. Well, it seems to me with that view of it that a part of the reason Paul was so passionate about persecuting these early Christians was this. The Christians were really a threat to the Roman Empire because if everybody believed like this Jesus was teaching, it would turn everything topsy-turvy. Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. 
That sounds like insurrection and sedition. And that's why Jesus was crucified. He was a threat. Now, these Christians were still a part of the Jewish community at that time. Now, if the Romans thought they needed to suppress these Christians and their teachings, the Romans didn't make a distinction between the Jewish Christians, I mean, the, you know, the Christian Jews and the regular Jews. They would go in and oppress the whole group of them. And Paul was probably worried about these Christians upsetting that cozy relationship of this Polytuma relationship with Rome. And that would have serious effects on the social, economic, and political relationships that they enjoyed. Secondly, Paul's scholarly training in the scriptures as a Pharisee made him fully aware that a crucified Messiah just doesn't hold much water. In his mind, it's wrong and it needs to be stamped out immediately. Now, being a strict Pharisee, he was a strong adherent of law and order, so he followed proper protocol. Went to the chief priests in Jerusalem, got the certification to be able to go and arrest these heretics. Now, obviously, he knew there was an active community of Christians in Damascus, so he begins this 140-mile walk from Jerusalem to Damascus. And he took some temple police along with him because he knew he couldn't do it all by himself. However, before he had done this, he had witnessed the stoning of Stephen, our first known Christian martyr. Now, Paul may have heard the long speech that Stephen had made in defense of his faith and explaining who Jesus was and how the Christians believed about Jesus. He may have heard that, but we do know the text is clear. Paul was present at Stephen's execution at the stoning. And he did hear Stephen forgive his executioners. And he did see that he died bravely, courageously, peacefully. Paul didn't cast any stones, but... Luke tells us that he did approve of the execution. Now, we cannot help but believe that having witnessed that on this 140-mile march, that must have been playing over and over and over again in Paul's mind, preparing his heart for this encounter with the risen Christ. Marcus Borg and John Dominic Croson have written a book about Paul, and in it they explain that there are three kinds of conversions. How many of you know there are three kinds of conversions? Good. Sunday school teaches you things. <clears throat> the first that they say is a conversion from being unreligious to becoming religious. The second is to be converted from one religion to another religion, like becoming a, a Buddhist from being a Christian or going from Buddhism to Christianity, conversion from one religion to another. The third, they say, is within a religious tradition. 
like being a Baptist and becoming a Methodist, or being Episcopalian and becoming a full gospel Pentecostal Christian. It's within a religion. Now they say that this third kind of religion was what Paul's conversion was within a religious tradition because Christianity was a sect within Judaism. When Paul was converted, he uh, was converted from being a Pharisaic Jew to becoming a Christian Jew. Now, all the Christians at that time were still Jews. They were participating in temple worship. They were participating in synagogue worship. The only thing is they had an extra time where they participated on the Lord's Day, Sunday evening, where they rehearsed the Lord's Supper. But they believed that the Messiah had come, and it was Jesus. Well, I think this understanding of within a tradition that conversion can happen is helpful for each of us in our own faith journey, wherever we are in our faith journey. It really fits like hand in glove in the developmental uh, studies I had in my doctoral studies, how we come to faith, how we grow and develop in faith. Now, even though Paul's conversion was unique, his conversion experience has some themes that are common to all conversions. The first and the foremost is this light, this enlightenment, getting a revelation, an insight, a new way of seeing things, or even receiving sight like the Amazing Grace hymn, I once was lost and now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It's like the veil is taken away. It's like the scales fall away. It's like light shining and illuminating some new truth in such a way that I can say and affirm, this I believe. Now, this new vision and revelation causes a crisis in belief and our faith, for the new truth does not fit in the old belief structure. For Paul, a crucified Messiah does not fit into Pharisaic Judaism's structure. As with Moses, God speaking from a burning bush doesn't fit in the old belief structure. Something new has to come out of that, like Ten Commandments. But Paul, struck down by a bright light that calls him by name, and Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That doesn't fit in his old belief structures. Now, when this event happens to anybody, something happens, we can deal with it in one of two ways. One way is we can deny it. Didn't happen. Reject it. I can't accept that. Try to explain it away. Oh, well, this only means that. Or we can attack it and try to persecute those who think that way so we don't have to deal with it anymore. Suppress it. And that's what Paul was doing before his experience. The other choice is that you have to tear down your own old belief system 
in order to rebuild a new one, a new structure that can take in this new insight where it will fit. Now, it's scary and it's hard work to try to do that. But when your conversion is within a faith tradition, you don't have to throw everything out and begin anew from scratch. You can keep so much of what you already have and build a different structure. It just has to be built differently so that it can incorporate the new insight, the new understanding, the new revelation. And you also give different values and importance to some of those elements, and especially the new elements. For example, Paul used all of his knowledge of scriptures, his experience with Greek philosophy and argumentation, his experience in the synagogue worship that was so far away that you couldn't go to temple for the blood sacrifices on a regular basis. And with those pieces, he can build a new structure that includes the new experience. He builds an expanded belief structure of faith. And those structures keep the fundamentals of the Jewish tradition, but include the new stuff of crucified and risen Christ. And for us, the Gentiles are included. Now, before he could do all that and really work out his new structure, he first had to receive instruction and listen to the stories of those who were ahead of him in this way of Jesus. And before his baptism into Christ, we're certain that Ananias took him through a brief catechism like we do. Do you understand what it means to believe in God and Jesus as his son and the Holy Spirit? Explain what that means. And then afterwards, he went to visit James and Peter and learn from them and all that they knew about being with Jesus and what he had taught. And of course, Paul participated from his letters. We know how important it was in the Sunday evening breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper and experiencing the power of his presence there. Well, that process is common to all conversion experiences. One has to receive instruction. One has to learn from those who have gone before. One has to participate in the worship life of the community. And one has to build relationships with the mentors and the guides who show you the way. Now, the reason this is important for us to understand is because during our lifetime, we go through many different stages and levels of our understanding and our experience. From our childhood faith, it meets new challenges as we begin to think in symbolic and abstract thoughts. Our adolescent faith meets big challenges as we're moving into young adulthood and we're looking toward the future and what will my career be? Who will be my life partner? What is going to be my purpose and my place in the world? Will I have a sense of calling that I have a mission in life? Those are the key issues at that time. And then when we do marry and become parents and experience that awesome, frightening, scary responsibility of a fragile young life for whom we are now responsible 
That raises new questions and issues for us. And then in our midlife, issues of happiness and fulfillment and security weigh more heavily on us. And when we hit 50 or 40, the question is looming there, is time running out? And approaching retirement, becoming grandparents, the question of leaving some kind of a legacy for those who come behind is the handwriting on the wall. And then in our twilight years, becomes very personal, those questions about death, afterlife, heaven. Was it worth it all? Can I make up the mistakes I made? Will I be forgiven if I can't? All along the way, we face different life issues which can become faith crises and also opportunity for transition and growth and gaining wisdom and understanding and getting closer to God if we allow that to happen. These can be big or little conversion experiences where we need to try to restructure and rebuild that belief system to take in this new aspect and hold on to it. Sometimes those come when we sense the presence of God asking us some big question. What are you doing with your life? Or what are you doing to the people you say you love? Or are you caring for or are you abusing my wonderful creation I've given you? Some challenging question may come to us and create these challenges that bring a new insight and make us have to restructure that faith system. Now, the thing about a conversion within our faith tradition in the faith development terms is that it usually means if we'll go through it and do the work, we climb up to another rung on the ladder growing closer to God. Well, a couple of final points about Paul's conversion experience. First, even though he changed his name, as Bill's prayer illustrated, we don't always change our personalities. You know, tigers still got stripes and leopards still got spots. <clears throat> Paul was much the same. He was, before, he was deeply passionate. He was aggressive. He had a driving personality. He was committed to his faith. He was energetic. He was courageous. And he used all of his resources of his mental and capacity and his learning in order to promote his faith. And after his encounter with the risen Christ, he was just the same Except instead of fighting Christ, he was fighting for Christ. And he was following Christ. Now the last thing is that before his conversion, Paul was very driven. He was controlling. He was educated. He was very intellectual. But his faith seems to have lacked what we call heart those warm, fuzzy kinds of feelings. He had hate and bitterness feelings, but he didn't have the warm, fuzzy feelings. He also seemed to have lacked what would be called the mystical experiences. 
that side of faith wherein we really do sense that mystical presence of God. Well, Paul was all wrapped up in his beliefs and doctrine issues and legalistic issues of the faith, and we think he just lacked some of this heart and mysticism in his faith, but that conversion experience introduced him to it. But then he had to grow into it and into those dimensions. He did not abandon the other. He just added more and became more balanced in his faith and in his life. Well, I think the story of Paul, as I've kind of refreshed my memory of it and tried to share that with you, confronts us with some challenges as well, some questions about whether we have found all those dimensions in our faith to make our faith mature and whole and fulfilling. And if you're feeling like you're not there yet and something's missing, I suggest take off the goggles, open your eyes, look for the light, and hopefully that light will strike you somewhere along the way on your journey. And you'll have a chance to have a conversion within your faith experience and grow closer to God. In the name of the Christ, may it so be. Amen. Amen.